shit, James. You shot Dr. Gaskell's dog. But I... I had to, didn't I? Well, you could have pulled him off me. No, the dog was crazy, Professor Tripp. He was attacking you. The dog was attacking Calm you, down, Professor James. Tripp. What was I supposed to... Calm down, Don't freak out, all right? Okay. All right. Do you have a mirror? It's the best way to see if someone's still breathing. The dog is dead, James. Believe me, I know a dead dog when I see one. What are we supposed to do now? First, you're gonna give me that little cap gun of yours. Come on. Professor Tripp, what are we gonna do with it? I don't know. I'm still trying to figure out how to tell the Chancellor that I murdered her husband's dog. You? Trust me, James, when the family pet's been assassinated, the owner does not want to hear that one of her students was a trigger man. Does she want to hear it was one of her professors? I've got tenure. you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of the greatest moments in the history of forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 234, Wonder Boys Revisited. Always nice to get a mulligan, another go, if you will, at, at material that I love more with each viewing, I will say. I was really getting into it again every time I watch it. This is just such a great movie. I'm sure a lot of our listeners probably thought that we forgot about Revisited. We claimed that we were going to do four this year, and it's been a long time since we did The Silence of the Lambs. And then when they saw this pop up in the feed, they were probably in disbelief that this is one that we chose to redo. Yeah, <laughs> They're it's... like, oh, great, a I'll... movie we all love. I think this was the first, when you told me to think about which ones I'd wanted to redo, this was the first one that came to mind. Yeah, I love this movie, too. It's just... Not exactly one that everyone oh, yeah. cares so much about. Oh, but sure. We talked about it probably on the original episode, but it's like this movie really wasn't on my radar until I w- walked in on you watching it. <laughs> and sobbing. Yeah. <laughs> Toby Maguire was just like acting like a creep, and I'm like, what is this? <laughs> like, it's great. Okay, so, yes. Wonder Boys revisited. It's a brand new episode we're recording It's basically an opportunity to redo one from the early days of the show. Our first time around with Wonder Boys was April 11th, 2016. It was our 16th episode of the podcast, and it was 43 minutes long. So there's your first clue. (laughs) Wow. We don't do episodes like that anymore. No. (laughs) Even our mini-sodes are longer. Right. (laughs) 
before we talk about Wonder Boys, let's just do the usual bullshit. Yeah, please. Follow the show on Twitter, Accuratus Pod. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Podbean or whatever. Give us a rating and review if you get a chance on Apple Podcasts. We love to read those. It really means a lot. Absolutely. Sometimes I'll reread them just for a pick-me-up. Yeah, and I... Thanks for interacting with the show. It really uh, gives us something to talk about when we're not recording. <laughs> yeah, I think for the longest time, it sort of felt like we were just broadcasting this out to nothing. Absolutely. So the fact that even anybody <laughs> talks to the show at all is a big surprise. That's right. If you'd like a sticker, let us know. Matt will send it to you eventually. That's true. <laughs> all right. I got some things going on, but they always get out. And finally, follow us on Letterboxd. Zach1983 and Matt Crosby on there. Yeah, this uh, turned out to be like a, a Curtis Hansen weekend for me watching Eight Mile last night. Oh, wow. so weird that he directed that. <laughs> that was a big hit. It was. Okay, so Wonder Boys. Before we even mention the specifics, let's give Matt an opportunity to explain himself. Why revisit Wonder Boys? Because it's just a movie that I love and I, I feel like... Anything that we did in the first 50 episodes? That's being generous to us. There's just ones on my mind that I need another chance at it. We're eagerly anticipating what you're bringing today, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait. (laughs) I I just, I don't know. This is a movie that over the past few years, it's just one that's really grown on me and probably one that I've watched more than a lot of other movies in recent memory. Fun fact for those out there who are interested in this sort of thing. This was actually an episode we recorded twice. Yeah. (laughs) Back in the day, I mean. It was the early days of the show. We were even more terrible than the ones we posted sometimes. And I just felt like we had to redo it. And we recorded it twice. This Was was this the one that we finished? And I was like, oh, we're done. And you were like, no, we're redoing that? Maybe. Okay. Because that (laughs) definitely happened with one of them. Like, I... That was a complete surprise to me. <laughs> I was like, okay, we're done with the ep. And you're like, yeah, we're redoing that. That was terrible. I was like, what? Oh, okay. Well, part of that was probably my own inexperience, too. I probably should have been more open to listening to them first yeah. before making the decision. You know, when I was watching the movie this time around, I, I have like vague memories of recording it the first time. And I was thinking to myself today, I'm like, man, I feel like we barely talked about anything the first time around. Yeah, that was every episode. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) There's so much that we just didn't mention. And that's why we're doing Revisited. That's right. And we got two more coming up this year. And I think we're happy enough with these where we will probably be continuing them into the future. Yeah. And plucking some titles from the early days that we feel need to be redone. Yeah. And have a better effort on the record. I do think of this movie as kind of an underrated gem. It is... So weird that this movie had a like a $55 million budget. That seems unbelievable. Yeah. It doesn't look like a movie of that size. It just was a different time. Yeah. They would just hand out money for anything. Right. <laughs> and of course, you know, it, it, it did not turn a profit. But I, I was so used to picturing Michael Douglas as basically his character from Basic Instinct. Like, that's just what I always thought he was, in, like in real life and every character that he played. Yeah, I definitely think that this was a change-up for him. He gained some weight for the part. But he was a big part in Curtis Hansen signing on to direct it. Yeah. He was a big part in it getting made because Douglas had had a pretty strong track record for about 15 years at that point. 
starting with romancing the stone all the way up through what traffic or whatever yeah i mean it seems like for both of them this was an opportunity to make something a little bit lighter and not like these big dark movies so wonder boys was directed by the late great curtis hansen who unfortunately has passed away in the five years since the last time we did this that's right yeah (laughs) He was coming off of L.A. Confidential, which was a big movie and was nominated for a lot of shit, which is probably why they were willing to give him $55 million for this. He'd also directed The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, which was also a huge hit, and I watched for the first time this year, and I thought it was great. Rebecca De Mornay, just killing it in that movie. Really underrated movie, I think. Okay. As Matt mentioned, he also directed 8 Mile, some other stuff pretty good career i'm a fan of his films i love la confidential i'm sure someday we'll do it he's one of those ones that you look at the filmography and it just seems kind of odd when you look at the titles he definitely worked in a lot of different genres yeah yeah. the screenplay was written by steve cloves who was the writer director of the fabulous baker boys which is another one of my favorite movies absolutely now he went on to write the harry potter yeah, he adapted plays. all of the Harry Potters except for one. And I was thinking to myself, o- only briefly, boy, it seems weird to go from like Fabulous Baker Boys and adapting Wonder Boys to Harry Potter, and then I'm like, oh, well, I think the paycheck's probably a bit higher. Well, after Fabulous Baker Boys, he basically like retired from the film world and then was lured back in with this novel and was like, all right, I'll adapt this. And he was originally planning to direct it. Okay, yeah. And then Hanson signed on who was a bigger deal at the time. Wonder Boys is based on the novel of the same name by Michael Chabon, who went to the same college as me, sort of wrote a lot of Pittsburgh-based things like Wonder Boys and the Mysteries of Pittsburgh. We've mentioned the Mysteries of Pittsburgh before. For some reason, it used to come up a lot in the early (laughs) days of the podcast. It's just one of those fun to talk about situations like that movie yeah i'm not a huge fan of the movie but i revisited that film this year and i thought it was better than i remembered it's just hard to compare it to the book yeah but i think wonder boys is a really solid adaptation of the book there's some stuff that's missing but it's stuff that you need to cut to make it a normal length movie wonder boys stars michael douglas toby mcguire who you're getting pre-Spider-Man. Yeah, just barely, right? I mean, this is 2000, was Spider-Man 2001? Yes, I think something like that. It's probably around the same time, really. Yeah, that's probably... What year was Spider-Man? I th- I thought it was 2001. Yeah, maybe. Francis McDormand, post-Fargo, pre-other Oscars. Katie Holmes, who is in the midst of Dawson's Creek at that point. And pre-Iron Man... Robert Downey Jr. still very much in the middle of his personal problems yeah, which, for a large portion of his life there for a while. Yeah, I mean, the Crabtree character kind of <laughs> We said the same thing things. when we did Less yeah. Than Zero. We're like, yep, <laughs> <laughs> basically the same. Well, there was probably just a time where directors and casting directors would like read scripts and a character like this would pop up and be like, I know who should play this part. Wonder Boys is near and dear to my heart for a variety of reasons it was shot in pittsburgh pennsylvania including locations at carnegie mellon university chatham university university of pittsburgh and shady side academy other pennsylvania locations included beaver rochester and ross traver township 
So pretty much a big Western Pennsylvania movie. Yeah, just wish that Howard Johnson's was still around. And this was pre-Pittsburgh becoming a regular filming location. That's right, yeah. Over the last decade or so, there's been a lot of shit filmed in Pittsburgh. It's a common occurrence. Like, all the time, there's multiple things. But this was still, like, pre-that, where there weren't that many. This was filmed here because the story takes place here. Although the studio originally tried to get them to use Toronto or somewhere else, and Hanson felt like it needed to be here Yeah. after reading the book. It's a great depiction of campus life, even though there isn't very much to do with school. I think the opening yeah. scene is in a classroom, but after that, it's just a weekend. But it reminds me of other films that just sort of capture the essence of it. Yeah. Without the specifics, it's, it's more of like of, a feeling. Uh, mixers with the uh, faculty and the students there. That was never my college experience. No, there's a lot of things like that <laughs> that I'm, I'm just sort of blown away by. But yeah, I didn't really run in that crowd. I think we'll talk about this more as we get into the movie itself. But I mean, I think that there were opportunities for me to probably yeah to take part in things that happen like in this movie, right. and I just avoided it at all costs. Anything that's a thing. I can't picture you taking right. part in it. Yeah, exactly. Right. I like that the movie is a dual coming-of-age story for both Grady, oh, who yeah. is Michael Douglas's character, and James, who's I, Tobey Maguire's character. I mean, the Grady Trip character, of course, throw out the whole thing of him having some degree of success as a writer, but this is just a character I relate to for my whole life. <laughs> like, yeah. I feel like I, I felt like Grady Trip when I was like 19, you know? There's a refusal to grow up with his character, which makes him appealing to the viewers and to some of the people in the film, but at the same time leaves him in this suspended animation where he can't really get on with his life, because I think that that does happen with people who enter the world of academia, and then they get get sucked into that lifestyle, and they never leave. The students come and go, but some of the faculty stay there forever, and they just are constantly in that postgraduate life yeah and i mean a big part of it is like him just never making choices or committing to anything but having this comfortable life he's got tenure (laughs) nothing really bad is going to happen to him he can kind of just keep floating along but ultimately the movie wins you over because it's about one last adventure even somebody in their middle 50s basically it's never too late to have that one last fun adventure like that's basically what happens it's a little toned down from the book i'm not gonna bring up the book constantly but there is one section that's totally taken out but it it makes it even crazier was it as big of a difference going from less than zero the book to less than zero the movie no everything about (laughs) the the movie is different for less than zero this is just one section that they took out Wonder Boys was critically acclaimed. It has an 82% on Rotten Tomatoes. It was generally very well received when it was released in February of the year 2000. But it was not a financial success. It made $33.4 million at the box office on an absolutely absurd $55 million budget. After the film failed at the box office, there was a second attempt to find an audience with a new marketing campaign and a re-release. In November of 2000, it actually was released on my 
seventeenth birthday. Whoa! So I could have seen this as like my first legal R-rated movie. Yeah, that's a big miss that you didn't. I didn't though. Yeah, I don't even know if I remember it coming out. Well, I certainly didn't. Which ultimately was another financial disappointment. And I, it's funny reading the quotes about that too because. It seems like the studio knew that it wasn't going to succeed because it's never worked ever in the history of movies where they take a flop and re-release it and try to oh, make yeah, it yeah. better. But they still try from time to time. Right. <laughs> and it never works. People didn't care the second time. Yeah, I, I, it just seems so crazy. The $55 million budget thing I'm blown away by. I was expecting to look and see like a $12 million budget. They just spent more money back then yeah. on everything. And that's including the fact that Douglas took way less than what he usually I, was making. so nuts. It is a fairly stacked cast. That's true. But I just think that they were free with the money. They weren't working on a shoestring budget. They took like four and a half months to film this. You wow. Know, they weren't being frugal because they didn't need to be. That just was. It was a different mindset back then. They would never do anything close to this now. Yeah, this would be like a Except four for maybe week Netflix. movie. This would be like a four-week filming schedule or less. Right, yeah. I did see that Noah Baumbach's new movie, White Noise, which is an adaptation of the Don DeLillo novel, has like an $80 million budget. Holy hell. A Noah Baumbach movie has an $80 million budget. I almost threw up, and then I was like, (laughs) oh, it's Netflix. No wonder. Yeah, yeah. They're just like, whatever. (laughs) Light our money on fire. We don't care. The novel came out in 1995. And I've read it a couple of times. The most recent time was probably last year. There are some context clues in it, and you can figure out that it's set in April of 1992. Okay. Just throwing that out there. But I don't think the movie is. No, because I think they say it's February in the movie. Right, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. I'm saying that that's when the book is set, and that's when the book came out. But yeah, the movie is... Probably supposed to be February of 2000. Yeah, yeah. Or 1999 or something. I don't think they were worried about an era or anything. The novel grew from Shaban's concerns with completing an unrealized novel, Fountain City, about the construction of a perfect baseball park in Florida. So he was in a similar situation to Grady. He started working on this thing that just kept getting unfinished. The genealogy of the construction workers of said baseball stadium. He decided to write a story about, in part, an author who couldn't finish his own work. The main character of Grady Tripp is admittedly based on University of Pittsburgh professor Chuck Kinder, who taught the undergraduate Shabon in the early 80s. Kinder's great opus, a novel inspired by his friendship with author Raymond Carver, was reportedly more than 3,000 pages long <laughs> at one point. It was finally published in a very slimmed-down version in 2001 as Honeymooners, A Cautionary Tale. So the book that is sort of the basis of this movie-slash-other book came out after this movie adaptation, yet I read that book, Honeymooners, A Cautionary Tale, by Chuck Kinder, when I was in college, before I even really knew about Wonder Boys, really. Yeah. I didn't know that any of this was related to each other. I remember liking that book. Chuck Kinder is another guy that died since the last time we did this. Okay. I probably could have had classes with him as a teacher because I think he was still teaching at Pitt up until was well that after another, I Was that a similar situation where he had had a previous success? Yeah, he had books from like... I looked at okay. his books and he had two p- published in the 70s. Gotcha, okay. And yeah, then yeah. Honeymooners came out in 2001. That's awesome. <laughs> 
It's a funny book. I remember there was like a, a rim job scene in it. Wow. <laughs> I like the book. I actually probably didn't know who Raymond Carver was at that point either, and I've read his stuff after that. He's way more famous than Chuck Kinder, though. Professor Grady Tripp, the main character of the film, is a novelist who teaches creative writing at what I'm referring to as the University of Pittsburgh, although it is That's officially right. unnamed. Yeah, in I was going to say, I, that stood out to me. I've always just took it as that, but I, I guess I never really realized that they don't call that out. Yeah, they sort of uh, use an amalgam of all yeah. of those universities that are like basically on one or True. two streets right. in Oakland. Grady's at a crossroads. His third wife, Emily, has just left him. He's also carrying on an affair with the university chancellor, Sarah Gaskill, played by Francis McDormand. I got to say, on his wife leaving him, doesn't seem that broken up about it. No, no, he's definitely not. <laughs> it's happened before right. with other wives. Yeah. He was not really that committed to the relationship. Sarah's husband, Walter, played by Richard Thomas, who we would remember from... Stephen King's It. That's right. <laughs> Big Bill. He was also on the, what was that show from the 70s? I don't know, but he does just have such a recognizable voice. The Waltons, I think. Oh, uh, okay. A little before our time. Yeah, yeah. Not a big Waltons fan. He's the chairman of the English department, essentially making him Grady's boss. So even though she's the chancellor of the school, he is having an affair with his boss's wife. Right. Always a uh, delicate territory. Grady has fears of being a one-hit wonder in the literature world. He had a novel called The Arsonist's Daughter. He won a, a pen award for. Yeah, it was award-winning. I, I don't think it was supposed to be like a big seller necessarily yeah. or anything like that. Although I will say, the house that he lives in seems huge. Right, but it's one of those like yeah, I know. It's campus-type not... houses right, right. that it just seems like way too big. And a lot of times they might run it out as like apartments. But... Yeah something like that plus we don't really know a ton about what his wife was up to that's true i think that's a little bit more fleshed out in the novel his wife is completely different yeah in the book but yeah and i mean i right i'm not thinking that this book was something that he's made a fortune off of especially given like crabtree's situation which seems like he's just barely hanging on from <laughs> yeah. like this one success seven years ago i will say it's weird that it's a time period where seven years seems like it's forever that's true. Because the way they make it seem, you're thinking like 15 years or something. Yeah. Seven years does not seem that long to me. Not everybody is Stephen King and has like two 1,000-page books a year or something. It's just <laughs> yeah. not what most writers do. Right. Seven is like kind of long if you're planning on like maintaining a career, but yeah. it's not like absurd or anything. Well, I mean, like think about the Game of Thrones dude. Oh, yeah. Well, I definitely uh, I, wrote George R.R. Martin several times I know. That was really hitting with me on this viewing, too, just because of the whole, when they do talk about his book, like the Katie Holmes conversation thing, you do feel like the Game of Thrones novels at a certain point. It's just like, why now are we like going down these paths with all these new characters? Like, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Grady's follow-up to The Arsonist's Daughter, entitled Wonder Boys, grows and grows as he continues to labor on it expanding past 2,500 pages with no satisfactory ending in sight, and it's just this albatross around his neck. I was listening to uh, some of the interviews on the special features of the Blu-ray, uh -huh. and they kind of were talking about the idea of like a Wonder Boy and like having the success but not really knowing 
what it was that made that thing right. successful. Yeah. And that was really hitting with me. I was like, oh, yeah, now you're trying to recapture this thing, but you really don't know what you did. It was kind of like an accidental success. Right. I think it's a, it's sort of a... It's like Richard Kelly with Donnie Darko. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it is more ambiguous, though, because I hate to keep doing this because I said I wasn't, but in the novel, he had a couple of books. Okay. And they were published when he was like younger. They don't really do it like that. So you're like, okay, yeah. I don't know how old Grady is supposed to be, but Michael Douglas is already in his 50s. If it's seven years ago, you're talking about late 40s. What was he doing before that? He True. must have already been a professor or something making yeah, yeah. money. So he's not a wonder boy. Well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> There's a hole here. I know what you're saying because, yeah, because they do the whole thing where he yells wonder boy. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It. There's like a passing of the torch like James Lear. Right. But it just doesn't add up because he wasn't – unless they're like trying to convince us that Grady's supposed to be in his 30s or some absurd yeah, leap like I, that. I'm not thinking so. So I don't know, like, what are they saying? Like, it seems That's like he true. didn't have his first it, success until later in it life. It doesn't anyway. exactly hit that he was like some twenty-year-old success. Yeah. No, that's where a novel can give you a fuller story as to what the situation right. is. Explain all of the details of your life. You can't really get into that in an hour and forty-five minute movie. That's it's right. It's not going to work. For us, it was the uh, knock-knock episode. Yeah, that was our Wonder Boys moment. (laughs) Well into middle age at this point and still going strong with the pot and the occasional excess drinking, although he downplays that. It does seem like he still dabbles. Oh, yeah. I don't really drink. (laughs) Proceeds to through a good chunk of the movie. He was reminding me a little bit of some of the verses in Stuck Between Stations. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, this movie kind of seems like a hold steady song. Yeah. He was drunk and exhausted, but he was critically acclaimed and respected. Yeah, I know yeah. they're talking about somebody specific, and it's it's not anything to do with this movie, but still, That's right. you get that vibe. It was resonating. Speaking of music, Bob Dylan won an Academy Award for Things Have Changed as the song in this movie. There's also some other Dylan songs and then some other songwriter songs. Yeah. Neil Young, John Lennon, etc. It's a pretty cool soundtrack. So the movie, as you alluded to does take place in february i do think that this is a perfect movie to watch or rewatch between february and april yeah we were originally going to do it sometime after the cocktail audio commentary but then i decided that we were taking like an extended break i always think of it as a a winter movie i know that it's becoming spring but it does seem cold through a lot of the movie yeah i guess i associate it with Late March, early April because of the novel, because there's a whole section that deals with Seder and everything, and that's like a very specific time period. But yeah, it's a perfect Pittsburgh movie in the sense that there's snow on the ground, but then and it's snowing the one night, and then it's just like torrential downpour. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) right. Oh, the weather. (laughs) (laughs) The movie opens with Grady reading one of James's stories aloud to his class so james is played by toby mcguire he's a student not beloved by his classmates no it's a peer review situation which i definitely was a part of things like this from time to time i wouldn't be able to take it i, I couldn't at that well point nobody actually acted like how this redheaded well, yeah. chick acts <laughs> in this movie yeah yeah <laughs> the classmates rip it apart for being too dark and depressing which that's like yeah. what everybody wrote i was when gonna I was say they should have read my writing it was like, 
just one long suicide note. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely had teachers that took me aside at least once and being like, this isn't like a real. Right. <laughs> I'm not joking either. I, you're like, well, it's up for interpretation. <laughs> Hannah, played by Katie Holmes, saves the day for James, sort of jumping in and defending it a little bit. I did love th- that redheaded bitch just rolling her eyes. Oh, I know. During the defense. <laughs> that chick has she the shows back up at the end. Face. Too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I was in classes exactly like this English class, this English writing class. I kind of remember you talking about this being like, yeah, everyone wrote a story where someone died thinking that, that it was like so great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone's stories were. Basically, like, let's end with a shocking death or suicide. Yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, we get it. (laughs) The pretentiousness of these people knew no bounds. (laughs) There was one student who outrageously insisted upon being called F. Scott. Oh, gosh. By both the professor and the other students, like he had written The Great Fucking Gatsby or something. (laughs) F. Scott. Shut up. Another year, admittedly, I was somewhat envious of a classmate who was casually described as chronically depressed (laughs) by another student when he was absent. This description was met with solemn nods of approval and agreement from several others. It was all very dramatic and romantic and obviously a little desperate, too. I avoided socializing with these people like the fucking plague. Chronic depression meant you stayed in your dorm all day watching ESPN. (laughs) I did have opportunities. The professor did organize like a weekly post-class meetup at this bar in Squirrel Hill, and because I think we had like it was a sort of an evening class. Yeah, and I just was like, I'm, I would never do that. Yeah, I why would I ever do that? That's more for the female students, you know. Maybe I can't remember if the professor was a man or a woman. I, I have no memory. Yeah, I could not pick any college professor i've ever had out of a lineup zero memories though that's a good point uh, yeah I would... they're really basically anonymous people that just, you <laughs> yeah. barely interact it's like with the ever. charlie brown teacher they even talk that way <laughs> hannah and james are friends and both good writers contrary to what james's peers would have you believe hannah is renting a room in grady's house and is not particularly subtle about her attraction to him yeah Always wanting to, like, stay up and talk. Admittedly, I don't know that I picked up on, like, the first couple times I watched this. Maybe because I just was oblivious yeah. as to, like, signals from women. Because <laughs> I'd never had one in my life. I was like, I didn't get it. Yeah. <laughs> Grady does not reciprocate her feelings. No. But you also feel like the, it's almost like there's some lessons learned there. Like, maybe some of the ex-wives <laughs> were, like, a Katie Holmes situation just because... It's like she's attracted to him for his success as a writer. Right. Obviously. Right. There is a bit of hero worship. It's not that type of movie, which I think makes it less problematic than it would be if it was that type of movie. But you do have to wonder how weird it is that he has a student living in his house, a female student, number one. And number two, how did Emily, his wife, feel about that day when hannah was the one moving in (laughs) Uh, yeah i couldn't (laughs) stop thinking about that if if you're emily this has to put a strain on the situation having this like you would think college babe move into the house but then also like you're wanting to leave i I would be like i don't know if i can leave i'm like giving him (laughs) well but she's leaving for good yeah well (laughs) why would she care anymore uh sarah thinks she'll be back she's not gonna be back no 
I did like that after the savage beating that James got with his story and they're all shuffling out to head to this word fest thing and kick off the weekend on a Friday. He's just like, turn off the light, please. Yeah. <laughs> and Grady does. He's just like, okay. He just shuts the light off and James is sitting there in the dark. Yeah. That was one thing I was going to say too. Just, you know, you mentioned this, this word fest week. I do just love, I love a movie that takes place either in one day or over a short period of time, like a weekend like this. Yeah, this is like Cedar Rapids. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that very night is the opening of the aforementioned word fest, which again, I hate to keep saying this, but I do remember specific things like this that they would have at, at my college for the English department and stuff like that. Of course, I would never go. Right. God forbid that I spend one second extra than I needed to. <laughs> you had things to do. <laughs> yeah. Believe me. I had a busy schedule <laughs> right. of getting on that couch. <laughs> WordFest is the university's annual three-day convention for writers and wannabes. Grady's editor, Terry Crabtree, played by Robert Downey Jr., is flying in for the event. That's right. A lot of uh, Pittsburgh airport material between this and She's Out of My League, which we were watching before <laughs> recording this. The two of them have a long-term working relationship. I think, again, in the novel, they're supposed to be about the same age. Obviously, they're not right. in this. But it doesn't matter. I think they're, we, RDJ we is great casting for this part. Yeah, I mean, we see them as peers, contemporaries. But time is moving quickly, and it's been years since Arsonist's daughter, and so their working relationship is a little strained. There's a lot of darkness around the Crabtree character, really. Yeah. He's kind of immediately alluding to, like, the pressure. <laughs> well, I'm not going to put any pressure on you, but, you know, I don't want to tell you about pressure. But then even, you know, with the Antonia character and what she reveals to Grady when he's driving her home. Yeah. We meet Crabtree at the airport arm in arm with a new friend, a very tall transvestite, Miss Antonia Sloviak. So let's talk a little bit about this time period for Robert Downey Jr. He was someone where you would turn on E! Entertainment News and there would be some crazy story and he was constantly in like jail. In a courtroom. Courtrooms, jails, yeah. being arrested for trespassing on people's property when he's nude or <laughs> yeah, drunk yeah. or something. Oh, it no, was me. a wild time. Right. And the fact that he became Iron Man and has become like this completely other person is so unexpected and random. It's almost unbelievable. Oh, that's a that great story, happened. really. He is a great actor. He does bring such a charisma. He's just so loose, you know? Yeah, he used to be a great actor. I don't know. Now that he's just committed to like only ever doing the right, Iron Man sure. stuff, it's yeah. sort of like boring. But yeah, he used to be like really great, even before his problems. He's got a stuff. great presence, though. Robert Downey Jr. was on probation during the winter of 1999 when Hanson considered him for a role in Wonder Boys. Hanson was cautious because of the actor's drug history and was concerned because it would be a tough film shot in sequence in Pittsburgh in the winter. Downey flew to Pittsburgh and had a long dinner conversation with Hanson where they addressed his problems. The actor demonstrated a commitment to the project, and Hanson hired him. Reportedly, Downey acted professionally for the entire four-and-a-half-month shoot, but after it ended, he returned to L.A. and promptly violated his parole. Yikes. So... This was not the road to recovery yet. He just had a brief detour where he made this movie. Honestly, you would think this would be a little bit of a struggle. His character in this movie is like someone who's abusing prescription drugs, drinking. Yeah, but you never see him do that. I know, exactly. but yeah, triggers. 
<laughs> well, he might add a wild time, but he kept yeah. it together. All right. Terry's in town primarily because of Grady's unfinished book and just using WordFest as a reason to be there. There's a lot of career pressure. It's a completely different world, though, when you think about it and you think about Crabtree's job and the whole situation. We're talking pre-modern-day internet, pre-social media, pre-9-11 nostalgia going on here. It's just like a completely different world. Right. Very carefree. I think we talked about that well, in the we American did just Beauty because, episode. Just a t- completely different world. We we did talk about it in the first recording of this, too, because I remember just talking about him like being able to go up to the gate in the airport to meet Crabtree, oh, yeah. which is kind of like a shocking thing to see. There's a runner in this movie that's kind of harder to explain in film, and they don't go the full way with it, so I don't know that everyone can grasp it, but this sort of kicks it off where they get this tuba, that they think belongs to Antonio when she's off doing whatever. And this is like a, a running gag with filling up the right, trunk right. with all this different shit. And it's symbolic of the distractions of life, of baggage. And there's all kinds of stuff. And through the course of the movie, he puts crazy shit in the trunk. Oh, yeah. Less so in the movie than in the book where there's even more ridiculous stuff added to it. But that's a recurring thing. It's never really explained who owns the tuba because it's not Antonia's. Right. <laughs> I guess it's just in the trunk up until the time when the car leaves the story. That's right. <laughs> Once Marilyn Monroe is established as a presence and an interest in the film, it's possible that the character of Antonia Sloviak may be a nod to the film Some Like It Hot. Okay. Which stars Monroe. In that film, two men disguise themselves as women and pose as members in an all-female band, which is where the tuba comes from. Billy Wilder. Right, and it stars Tony Curtis, which might be where the name Antonia comes from. Okay. But I'm not sure. That's just somebody's yeah. guess, and I saw that online, and I kind of liked it. No confirmation that that's where it really comes from or not. The three of them head to the opening night party of WordFest at Sarah and Walter's house, and as you alluded to, this is a mixer with both students, faculty, alumni, and distinguished guests. That's right. Everyone's sort of drinking... Terry's making jokes, pretty open with the fact that Grady's carrying on this affair with Sarah. Yeah, People yeah. seem to know this. When they get inside the house, Poe, the Gaskell's dog, hates Grady. Poe's also blind. Terry just almost making jokes in front of other people. Oh, to I know. To the point where you're like, okay. <laughs> cool it, dude. This is a home we're, we're about house. to break up. Yeah. <laughs> Grady and Sarah sneak away. And she reveals to him that she is pregnant with his child. Grady doesn't really react to anything. <laughs> we should get that out <laughs> right now. Well, I, it just seems like part of the movie is things just keep getting placed on top. Like yeah, he's yeah. bouncing a right, bunch right. of plates and people keep adding plates to it. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, well, what difference is one more? I'm thinking about my wife leaving me now. This is happening. Right. I got this book that is never not in my mind. I do love it. Some of Michael Douglas, just his acting performance in this movie at different times. I, I just love how nonchalant he is about it. He's just kind of like, huh, well, that is surprising. <laughs> Sarah's husband, Walter, collects baseball memorabilia. Their bedroom seems to be filled with it. Although that oh. might be the guest room. I'm not really sure. How bad does Walter stink? Oh, yeah, because when they come back downstairs and he's just bloviating about Joe DiMaggio to Antonia. <laughs> this never shuts up. It's like, oh. Yeah, some of the stuff he says where he's like, the husband as slugger. 
and he's talking about Joe DiMaggio's consecutive hit streak record. Uh, and this just like, oh. obsession is obviously some sort of cover for just like his loveless marriage. <laughs> well, I mean, they're middle aged. I mean, what yeah, do you yeah. expect? <laughs> it's all a big stew of uncertainty for Grady with the book and his failing marriage and now the baby and now Terry's in town and his boss is involved and he's got Hannah making moves and oh yeah there's also James Lear which was going to pop back up in a minute I did love Rip Torn as Q oh yeah this just pompous <laughs> I was just going to say pompous prolific and ultra successful novelist who is a guest at WordFest and he sets his sights on Hannah who was oh, also yeah. in attendance at this party the part when he does his little like speech and starts off with I am a writer <laughs> <laughs> just like roll your eyes. Oh yeah, when we get there, I'm. I think I'll probably put that clip in if oh, I can. Oh yeah. Okay. Grady steps outside into the Gaskell's backyard, a snowy and quiet retreat, only to spy his student James Lear standing in the shadows, holding what James will then claim to be a replica gun. James is able to produce a quick and detail-laden story describing its origin. Oh yeah. However, over time. Grady, as well as the audience, will learn that I this is something that James is particularly good at doing. It takes Grady a little too long to catch on. His excuse is that he's distracted with so much else. Yeah, okay. These stories at a certain point just seem like different people's lives. They don't seem like... And this they're too all... perfect. Like, right. if you were talking about yourself, I mean, I know just from listening to you talk on the podcast... <laughs> just a it, bumbling it, it, You wouldn't be able to just have these details like... Like, string this together... Yeah, he talks like a writer, right. as if he's writing a paragraph in a book, which well, is not usually how anyone talks. You know, the great Catherine Trammell did say that <laughs> writing teaches you how to lie. I like that. Suspension of disbelief. All right. We're doing a different Michael Douglas movie right now. James? It's fake. It was my mother. She... Wanted in a penny arcade in Baltimore when she went to Catholic school. Well, that's very convincing. I used to shoot these little paper caps, but they don't make them anymore, the caps. It's just for good luck, you know? Some people carry rabbit's feet. You carry firearms. No, thank you. I don't like to lose control of my emotions. I'm not supposed to be here in case you're wondering, but the other night I was out with Hannah at the movies and she asked me since she was coming, so I ended up coming too. You and uh, Hannah, you seeing each other? No. What gave you that idea? James, relax. I'm not her father, I just rent her a room. She likes old movies like I do, that's all. So what's the movie you guys saw? Son of Fury with Tyrone Power and Francis Farmer. <sighs> she went crazy, Francis Farmer. So did Jean Tierney. She's in it, too. Sounds like a good one. It wasn't bad. You're not like my other teachers, Professor Tripp. You're not like my other students, James. Look, James, about this afternoon workshop, I'm sorry. I think I let things get a little out of hand. They really hated it. I think they hated it more than any of the other ones. Well... It doesn't matter. It only took me an hour to write. Really? That's remarkable. I have trouble sleeping. 
While I'm lying in bed, I figure them out. The stories. You cold, James? Oh, a little. Let me go inside. It's colder in there. <laughs> I guess you're right. Actually, I saw the greenhouse. I thought I'd come outside and take a look at it. Looks like heaven. Looks like heaven. I saw a movie once. Part of it took place in heaven. Everyone wore white. Lived in crystal houses like that. Where they should be going. James is defined by his love of old movies. In the movie, it's a little more generalized. I think Steve Cloves was going more for a love of the director Douglas Sirk, which I totally get with James's character. But in the book, he has carved, not carved, but scratched into his hand like an R.I.P. Frank Capra uh, thing. And right. that's how you're able to tell because he references Capra having just died in the fall. Capra died in the fall of 91. The events of the book take place during Seder, which gotcha. happened in 1992 in April. So you're able to figure out when it happened. But he's a big Capra fan. Okay. In the book. I just love his whole like life being dedicated to the Hollywood Golden Age. Like his when we yeah. finally see his well, room and everything. Yes, I like that, but I also like that he's able to name like every famous suicide. It's a big part of Hollywood lore. Yeah. James is enigmatic and it's never like beat over the audience's head, but he's clearly a little depressed and suicidal. I would say unstable. He comes across as unstable and creepy. <laughs> He's standing outside the chancellor's house with a gun. My first thought, of course, is darker in a way because I was like, well, he must be going in to kill somebody. Yeah, it's weird because this movie feels really light. So, like, you never really feel like the gun thing is much of a threat, even though it is. (laughs) The implication is that he's thinking about suicide. Right. At this point, we have no reason to question his actions even though he does lie a lot later. So it does seem as if this is all some real thing he's contemplating because he, of course, has no way of knowing that Grady's going to step outside. Yeah, yeah. The reason he's there in the first place is that Hannah did invite him to come because they apparently are friends and went to some movie together. Yeah, not the most likely friendship. Well, I agree, but... When they, at the end of the film, explain that she goes on to be a junior editor, maybe right. she sees yeah. like he's the most talented. That's right. She's attracted to that. Not sexually, but like yeah, she's yeah. drawn to it. Grady brings James inside with the promise of showing him something he'll really appreciate, which is not as creepy as it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> which I love how they do this, too, where they could have just as easily blown what this was beforehand sure. by having like Sarah mention it or something. Or just... Whatever. But the fact that they keep the audience in the dark, too, as to what he's going to show them, I think makes it better. James keeps wanting to go home, but Grady, perhaps understanding the implied gravity of the situation, or perhaps just feeling guilty over what happened in class earlier that day, insists on keeping James a part of things. So they go inside. Crabtree, who, who is just coming downstairs with Antonia, presumably after some sort of a sexual encounter, gets his first look at James. And it is yeah. very much like Alone by Heart is playing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he is. I, I mean, it's a bit much how much he's going for it. Yeah, and it's cruel, too. He discards 
Antonia so quickly. Oh, yeah. Just something brighter and shinier and more fun has come along, and now you're old news. See ya. But I also was thinking, like, how trashy is it to be that age? I don't know. Downey was probably in his 30s still at this point. But to be, like, 40 years old at an adult party and just be like, we're sneaking upstairs to fool around. It does this seem... doesn't even seem like that kind of a party. I know, but it's kind of like all the adults in this movie. I know, this, which is why it's so great. You right. want to believe that people are still this fun. Yeah, I know. Even though the reality is people are not fun and everything sucks and it's boring. <laughs> Everyone just wants to go to bed. And die. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's just like, hurry up, death, take me. <laughs> but this is a movie where people still are having adventures in their 50s That's and right, stuff. yeah. And you're like, maybe it doesn't suck to get old. Right. But no, it does. <laughs> <laughs> James will know about George Sanders. George Sanders? Mr. Crabtree is saying how George Sanders killed himself, only couldn't remember how. Pills, April 25th, 1972, in a Costa Bravo hotel room. <laughs> how comprehensive of you. James is amazing. He knows all the movie suicides. Go ahead, James, tell him. There are so many. Well, just a few, the big ones. Pierre Angeli, 1971 or 72, also pills. Donald Redberry shot himself in 1980. Charles Boyer, 1978, pills again. Charles Butterworth, 1946, I think, in a car. Supposedly it was an accident, but you know, he was distraught. Dorothy Dandridge, pills, 1965. Albert Decker, 1968, he hung himself. He wrote his suicide note and lipstick on his stomach. William Inge, carbon monoxide, 1973. Carol Landis, pills again, I forget when. George Reeves, Superman on TV, shot himself. Gene Seberg, pills, of course, 1979. Everett Sloan, he was good, pills. Margaret Sullivan, pills. Lupe Velez, a lot of pills. Gig Young, he shot himself and his wife in 1978. There are tons more. I haven't heard of half of them. You did them alphabetically. This is where James talks about the movie Suicides, and he, he does them in alphabetical order. That's so right. So he's sort of like a Rain Man-esque it, Yeah, Crabtree, you know, really hones in on that. Immediately, it seems like a sexual thing, but he's definitely, like, zeroing in on this is an opportunity. This dude could have talent. Possibly, yeah. Although I do think that it is sexual at first. Definitely. This actually is one of the more controversial parts of the film, because in the theatrical release james lists alan ladd amongst the suicides and alan ladd's family complained and wanted it out because it's never proven i guess that it was a suicide or or whatever so they did cut it out and it's not in the film anymore for the the vhs dvd and now blu-ray releases of the Mm -hmm. film it's not in it but that's a little factoid that there is a different cut of this film where he has another name in there and alan ladd was like pretty famous in the day yeah i know you always think about like i have these memories as a kid and i can't think specifically now but where it's like i had a memory of something happening in a movie and then i'd see it and it's like not there and when you have something like that happen you're like okay like the octopus and goonies yeah yeah if you only ever saw the tv version right (laughs) so i don't know but there is probably like that one guy that was watching wonder boys in the theater and was always like yeah they mentioned alan ladd Crabtree tells James, no one your age just wants to go home. True. Well, you did. (laughs) I don't know. It depends how old James is supposed to be. (laughs) I used to not be like this. No, I know. (laughs) You didn't even know me, so shut up. Yeah, but I've heard stories from you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, those weren't specifically embellished to get laughs? Come on. (laughs) The item that Grady shows James 
is a mink-lined jacket worn by Marilyn Monroe on the day of her wedding to Joe DiMaggio. Walter has purchased it and is keeping it locked in a safe up in the bedroom. Yeah, this sort of like seedy secret hobby of his because it's like... He yeah, he doesn't say how much he spent that's on right. it. That's right, yeah. It's like giving up their life savings on this fucking <laughs> memorabilia. Well, it's interesting because I think that that jacket actually sold in real life in like 99 or something for like 30000 or something. Oh, wow. But if it's sold now, it would probably be like millions. Yeah. I think that market is so much more now than it probably would have been in the 90s. They talk about how she was smaller than people thought and the, the shoulders. It, I will say, looking at this jacket, it doesn't look like it would fit anyone. <laughs> If you pay close attention, the combination to the safe is 5641, which is the number of games Joe DiMaggio had a hit. Of course. For the record, in the year 1941. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> Enough. Seeing the jacket there in the closet and getting to touch it and look at the picture of Marilyn on her wedding day brings James to tears. And I have to say... Watching it now for the podcast, I was getting a little emotional just yeah. because James was selling it so much. I think this, not even when he was crying, because that's a little. Hokey. Yeah, it's a bit much. This is where I came in the first time when you were watching it, and I'm like, "What is up with this dude? He's crying about yeah, the yeah. jacket." And then you know would go on to shoot a dog shortly after this. So <laughs> I was like, "What is this movie?" Yeah, but I get it. I oh, get yeah. like why he's getting emotional about it. It is sort of depressing that this. Is, monumental thing in somebody's life somebody who was super famous just ends up in some douchebag's closet right. hidden away by itself especially when her life ended so sadly and every, you know it's just i get it yeah it's a bummer <laughs> by the time grady and james are set to leave everyone else has left the house there's more to this word fest night yeah i know the gaskell's really just like not concerned that there's some people loitering at the house still. Well, they probably didn't know. Yeah. Because why would someone be up there? That's true. Poe makes an appearance, agitated by Grady's presence. <laughs> the dog pounces on Grady's ankle, wrestling him to the ground. By the way, the way Poe acts towards Grady is the way that I feel like every dog acts towards me. <laughs> Just wants to kill me as soon as I show up. Well, don't have bacon in your pocket. Oh, that's a, no, times. it can smell my weakness is what it is. <laughs> However, James's little pistol that he claimed was fake turns out to be very real and he fires two shots at poe killing the dog grady just has like an unbelievably great reaction to this yeah. <laughs> just like what you could have pulled him off me so this is a shocking moment that probably would be hard for some people to yeah. deal with i will say the dog is like fucking him up though he it's yeah, like it's his, gotta... the skin is broken by the, these bites Oh, yeah, yeah. He's latched in there. But I don't know. I mean, yeah. it is a little crazy that he just shoots the Oh, dog. I would agree. <laughs> Even James Lear questions his actions. Because he's like, well, I had to shoot him, right? <laughs> well, yeah, he's like, we need to get a mirror to see people. <laughs> <laughs> Grady and James drive to the big WordFest speaking engagement with Poe in the car. Oh, yeah. Another thing added. No, not in the trunk yet. Not think. yet. When they park, they put the dead dog into the trunk with the tuba and Crabtree's bag. Grady raids Crabtree's stuff, finding codeine and booze. <laughs> His ankle is killing him at this point. As you said, I mean, it is bleeding and yeah, fucked yeah. up. He's got a limp now. He convinces James to loosen up and partake as well because James was 
adamant about not smoking pot yeah, or this, drinking. I, I got to tell you, this doesn't feel responsible. No, but that's sort of the theme of the movie because it's every true. every anytime anyone finds out that Grady is guiding him this weekend, oh, they're yeah. always sort of incredulous about this information. <laughs> How lucky for him. But in a way, it is the right recipe. James is wound so tight. Yeah, he's, he's got probably never loose. had fun. No. Honestly, the scene of James coughing the pill back up onto Grady's coat never fails to make me laugh. Oh, I know. It's like I such a slapstick moment, but hilarious. And even Grady, it might be my favorite delivery in the whole movie. It's like, what do you say we try that again? <laughs> yeah, the pill is the just pill stuck to his coat. <laughs> that is a big trunk. It holds a tuba, a suitcase, a dead dog, and a garment bag almost perfectly. Yeah, that's just what they used to say in the ads. Come on, Crabtree, I know you're holding. Whose tuba is that anyway? Miss Sloviak's. Can I ask you something about her? Yes, she is. So is your friend Crabtree, is he is he gay? Most of the time he is James, some of the time he isn't. What do we have here? This looks like... That's our old friend, Mr. Codeine. That should take the old pinch out of the ankle. You want one? No thanks, I'm fine without them. Right. That's where you're standing in the Chancellor's backyard, spinning that cap gun of yours. You're fine. Yeah, you're just as fit as a fucking fiddle. (coughs) I'm sorry, James. I'm sorry I said that. They go into the event. Q is speaking. Chef's kiss. <laughs> Just unbearable. The applause <laughs> after the I am a writer. Yeah. I love Grady. Just can't take it. Yeah, he just makes a face immediately. Oy. Like, oh, God. I am a writer. And this is the first dizzy spell, panic attack thing that we see Grady have, which is something that recurs throughout the film. Yeah, kind of a weird wrinkle to the whole situation. He's adamant that it doesn't have anything to do with the booze and the pot and everything. Ultimately, based on his narration at the end of the film, I do think that that sort of is proven to be true. But yeah. He's living hard and fast for a guy who's like in his mid 50s and he's got a lot on his plate. It has to just be, you know, it's the Tony Soprano anxiety blackouts. Yeah, they never refer to it, but I do think it's a panic attack yeah. situation. He wakes up outside of the auditorium with Sarah over him. He tries to tell her about what happened, but she cuts him off, convinced he's going to tell her that he's staying with his wife. Although, as he points out, it's not really his choice anymore. <laughs> yeah. She's gone. Crabtree and another guy carry James out of the auditorium. This is pretty funny because he's actually literally narrating it out loud. James, right, right, and- yeah. Would they make it to the bathroom in time? <laughs> Crabtree's delivery of that line, he's narrating. Yeah. It's <laughs> pretty great. Right. This plays into what you were talking about before, though, as far as faculty and students 
interacting where oh, yeah. the uh, the chancellor of the school just knows who James Lear is. That seems shocking to me. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Like, how small is this college? I was going to ask you, was this your experience at Pitt? No, I didn't even know who the chancellor right. was. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know who, any, who my teachers were most of the time. <laughs> but what is this? Say by the Bell the college years? That's right. Yeah. Didn't the chancellor become a character on that, that woman? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and then of course it's like now we're we're going for drinks after yeah. the event. Antonia's been discarded. I'd like that need to ride home. She has to sit through this fucking speaking thing uh, with Q, and then it, it then just has to need a ride home. There's a lot of random rides needed in this movie. Yeah, which makes it feel more realistic than yeah, a lot yeah. of other movies. They they're taking the time to go through the Yeah, no Uber. The details of right. everything. Grady drives her home. She says Tony, now that I'm home, as she's taking off the wig That's and right. wiping off the makeup. She also reveals that Crabtree's back is against the wall evidently. The yeah. pressure is continuing to mount on Grady because now he feels responsible for Crabtree's professional oh, Well, this career. is what I was alluding to earlier. She's like, yeah, he's like, basically everybody just thinks I'm some loser, some joke back yeah. in New York. Although it is bullshit to put that on just Grady yeah, no. to deliver some big hit book or something. So they go to the hi-hat after party, which is possibly a bar that really existed in the Hill District. I, I don't think it does anymore. They it looks fi- fun. They filmed the exterior at a place that no longer exists. The interior does still exist, although I looked at it online and it doesn't look anything like that anymore Okay. on the inside. Because I was like, if it still looked like that, that would be great. What place is that that the interior was? I forget. Okay. (laughs) It's somewhere I had never been. Yeah, yeah. Hannah is dancing with Q, which is absurd and obscene. Oh, I know. James and Crabtree are in a back booth. James is nearly passed out. Crabtree mentions that he has a book. This was like me going out. I was just like the person falling asleep in a booth. People being like, we need to get him home. Crabtree is making a full court press on James at this point. Grady doesn't really know how to react to this. Should he intervene? Should he be protective of James? You do get into the whole thing of the age disparity. What is it exactly? Sure. Hard to tell. At one point, they say James is a sophomore, and then at one point, they say he's a junior, so who knows? Definitely seems unethical, I would say. <laughs> I don't know. He's an adult. That's true. Crabtree doesn't work for the school. That's right. Maybe it all checks out. Definitely, James is impressionable. Yeah, which I think is what Grady's point is, yeah. that he's confused. He was suicidal hours ago. Right. <laughs> Ula is their waitress, played by Jane Adams. She's pregnant. Yes, which seems dangerous, I got to tell you. How pregnant she is with all those people like right on top of each other. Yeah, weaving through the crowd at this right. place. The people are dancing and whatnot. Is that just beer? Primarily. Although I gather the two of you stage a little raid on the Crabtree Pharmacopoeia. So where is everybody? Well, Sarah and Walter declined. I guess they just want to go home and curl up on the couch with Poe. Jesus, he's out. He has a book. I know. He started in fall semester. Finished it, winter break. So is he any good? No, not yet, he is. Well, I'm going to read it anyway. Oh, Krabs, come on, will you? He's one of my students, for Christ's sakes. Huh? Besides, I'm not sure if he's, uh... He is, I'm sure. Take my word for it. I see myself in him. Oh, I'm sure you do. But it's a little more complicated than that. 
Besides, uh, he's a little scattered right now. He almost did something really stupid tonight. I don't think he needs sexual confusion to mix up the stew a little more. On the more. contrary, I think it might be just a ticket. Double dickle on the rocks. Thanks, Lula. Cheers. Oh my goodness, do you see what I see? Right there. Let's go. You first. President of the James Brown Hair Club for Men. He's a boxer, a flyweight. No, no, no. He's a jockey. His name is Curtis. Curtis Hardapple. Not Curtis. Okay, well, Vernon. Vernon Hardapple. The scars are from a horse. He fell during a race. He got trampled. He's addicted to painkillers. Yeah, he can't even piss standing up anymore. Lives with his mother. That's right. Uh, he's got a, a younger brother who, uh, who's, a, who's a groom named Claudel. Yeah. And his mother blames Vernon for Claudel's death. Right? <laughs> Because, because, uh, because, because why, right? Because, um, all right. He was killed when a gangster named Freddie Nostrils tried to shoot his favorite horse. Claudel took the bullet himself. Vernon, over there, was in on the hit. That was good. Yeah, he heard everything we said. Crabtree and Grady spot a guy who has hair like James Brown sitting in a booth and Vernon. They invent a story about him. This seems strange in the context of the film. I think in the book, the implication is this is something they do all the time. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of hard to, to put that across in the movie, but they make up a whole story about this guy. They name him Vernon Hardapple. That's right. And that he was a boxer or a jockey or something and it just keeps going and going and going this is one of those storylines where a bunch of things connect and then you get to that one thing that you're like i can't believe this connects it's like, like the, uh, some of the craziest episodes of seinfeld that's right where it all yeah. ties in somehow <laughs> james proves to not be as passed out as they thought as he jumps in and grady did say some things that he wasn't a good writer yet and stuff like that and he's like oh i guess you heard all of that <laughs> <laughs> hannah asks grady to dance this is her big moment. Honestly, going back and watching this stuff, Katie Holmes looks insane in this movie. Yeah. But she does seem so young, which is what makes it feel weird. And you can kind of get it. I think if I'm 20, 25 watching this movie, I'm thinking, like, why the fuck isn't he just going for it with her? She's <laughs> and then insane. now watching it as a 40-year-old, you're like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, now I'm like, oh, yeah, he seems so old. It's right. like, it's weird. Yes. <laughs> But honestly, Katie Holmes is not really in the picture all that much. No. And I think there's a reason for that, which we'll get to towards the end of the, the movie when we'll talk about something specific. But yeah, it's weird. You feel like she's going to factor in to more of these scenes. Yeah, she does just sort of fade from the narrative after a crucial point. Yeah, well, she just never goes along on any of the adventures. Well, she's always true, like yeah. back at the house. Right. No one knows where James lives, plus he left his bag back at the auditorium. By the way, he's very upset about the bag. What's well, got his book in it? I know. Plus something else, which we don't know about yet. The man they have dubbed Vernon tries to stop Grady, Crabtree, and Q, claiming Grady's car is his. They just think he's insane. At one point, he hops up onto the hood of the car. Yeah. 
and dents it. This sequence of leaving the bar feels so authentic to me. Like those, <laughs> not like the jumping on the car part, but like the whole mishap, like trying to leave the bar late at night. And like they're all kind of like drunk. One of your friends just, just like... randomly sprinting towards a car <laughs> where you're looking at him going, what is he, where is he going? Right, right. And it's just like, <laughs> I mean, Crabtree in the back just sort of like mocking Vernon. I don't know. It just feels like I had a lot of these nights. Meanwhile, Hannah drives James back to Grady's house while they go to get the book. So now is as good a time as any to bring this up. I had a couple of classes at Pitt with a girl who looked startlingly like Katie Holmes. Wow. I was, of course, madly in love with her. Sure, as one would. Embarrassingly, I even specifically signed up to be in her group for a group presentation. That's not embarrassing. Like I figured out which group she was in and I signed up for it. Did you get excommunicated from the group? No, I don't think I ever spoke to her even once. <laughs> and by the way, I had a girlfriend the entire time. Wow. But, you know, yeah. I was just like blown away. I think it was one of those situations where we like met for the group and someone in the group was like, all right, I'll just do it. And that and, was it. Yeah. Then we never met again. And that, that person just did our presentation. <laughs> <laughs> College was shockingly easy. I almost did zero work. Yeah. Really. I do remember situations like that popping up where every time there was a group, there was just one person who was like, you know what, I'll just do this. Yeah. Grady goes back to the auditorium to get James's bag, and inside of that bag is a manuscript called The Love Parade. And this is a nice little Easter egg in the film, because the first sentence of James's book is the opening of Michael Chabon's novel, The Mysteries of Pittsburgh. Oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) I like this custodian dude. Traxler. Yeah, Traxler's just such a nice guy, really. Yeah, that dude, Alan Tudyk. Yeah, yeah. However you say his name. Firefly. Was in some stuff around this time period. Wasn't he in like First Night or one of those movies? Yeah, the one with Heath Ledger. Yeah, what was that called? Was it First Night? I can't remember now. Crabtree and Q abandon Grady taking his car, so he has to get a ride back with the night janitor, who does happen to be a former student of his named Sam Traxler. Once at home, Grady sees a bit of Marilyn's jacket sticking out from James's bag, and he realizes the situation with Sarah and Walter has grown even more complicated than just the dead dog in the trunk of his car and the affair and the baby. <laughs> Because now there's grand theft involved. Right. Sorry, that was going to bother me. A Knight's Tale, by the way. Okay, yeah that, yeah, that makes more sense. You are sort of like the researcher on the show. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Producer. I'm the speaker. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're not the producer. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, you know, assistant producer. <laughs> Just researcher. Yeah, okay, fair. You're like... Uh... Gelman. Yeah, you are a Gelman. Right. That's a reference I'm sure everyone knows. <laughs> Gelman. <laughs> You're sort of like the Baba Booey of the show. Oh, yeah, really. And in life. <laughs> and in terms of attractiveness. Yeah, and hateability. <laughs> so he begins his work on Wonder Boys that night, I guess almost foolheartedly believing that he's going to be able to wrap it up. They don't really convey this in the movie, but I guess... He's thinking that maybe he could just throw together an ending to show Crabtree, but then rewrite it later. Right. But, you know, just have something to show him. Yeah, make it seem like, give Crabtree a reason to keep living. But he has another fainting incident, and he wakes up to James standing over him. 
they have a fun little conversation. You start to like learn bits and pieces about James when he lets his guard down a little bit. And he does mention that some of the other kids in class think that maybe he has writer's block and Grady says, I don't believe in writer's block and James <laughs> glancing at the piles of pages and he says, No kidding. Yeah, really. <laughs> it reminded me a little bit of Sideways. Yeah, for sure. With Paul Giamatti's just boxes of a novel. Absolutely. I definitely tie the, these two movies together, really. In terms the only of... difference is, of course, that Grady has already published something. That's right. And Maybe his talent is a little bit more apparent. Miles' than... character. Yeah. Miles might be a fraud altogether. <laughs> Certainly seems like it. Yeah. Miles is more relatable, even. Oh, I know. In so many ways. Oof. The flirtation between Crabtree and James continues. We have no idea what Crabtree and Q got up to the previous night. That's right. Because just basically, took Grady's car. Yeah, Hannah. Just leaving him at the school, which is like a super dick move, really. Yeah, I did say that. I know. I was still <laughs> trying to look up a Knight's Tale, but it's like, it, it is insane. And again, it's one of those situations where, all right, now Traxel has to give him a ride home. How can you even count on that in this time period? Yeah, well, I think the idea is that Crabtree is pissed because he separated him from James. Yeah. And he's not letting him do whatever he wants. Right. So this is like his little protest. But yeah, it's the middle of winter. How does he know he's going to get a ride? <laughs> Grady just dies of hypothermia. <laughs> I mean, I guess you could call taxis. Yeah, that's true. But from where? Not reliable, though. <laughs> a cop arrives. A B&E has been reported at the Gaskell house along with the missing dog. And James Lear is already a person of interest. He's already asking about him. <laughs> well, I guess because he's the only person that's sort of unaccounted for. Like, he shows up. Well, no one really can vouch for why he was there, specifically. This cop asks Grady if there was anyone suspicious at the party. You have to think if that same question was asked to other people at the party, the first person that comes to mind is James Lear. Yeah, probably. There's a lot going on in Grady's house. You have Hannah waking up. She seems to only be wearing a shirt. <laughs> Just stretching in like a seductive way. I mean, yeah, it, it's yeah, a lot to process. Right. Crabtree's running around freaking out. And then Sarah calls on the phone. He ends up hanging up on her. And it's time to take a trip. Which is James funny. tagging along. You're kind of going with the flow of the movie at this point. So it's almost like easy to just look past that he just hangs up on her. Yeah, and then, then you drive over there. I know. And they revisit it. But if they don't have that scene, you just would kind of forget. <laughs> You're kind of caught up in this little journey that they're on. Yeah, I think the whole thing in the movie is that the weight of the world falls on Grady. All of this other stuff involves all of these other people, yet sure. they don't seem to have to deal with it the same way he has to deal with everything. Right. Gradually, over the course of the day, Grady realizes that much of what James tells him about himself and his life is untrue, possibly designed for sympathy or for mystery or to make himself more interesting. Well, it takes him having to argue with the Bell Atlantic person to really... Get, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. a whole process right. over time. I do think that he doubts some of the things. Carvel. He does react a little bit. It's outside Scranton, okay? I'm looking at a person from there, right? <laughs> Finally dawning on him. So this trip that they go on in the movie is a little different from the trip in the book, it's hard to tell how far they're driving in the movie. It doesn't seem like it's that far. Uh, it's like the Mon Valley or something. In the book, they drive all the way out past like Slippery Rock University to some oh, big okay. farmhouse. Heading north. And they go to Emily's house with her family. And Emily is there. And Emily has sisters, and they're there. And 
Emily and her sister are both Korean, and they oh, were adopted wow. by this other okay. family. That is different. James and Grady spend Seder dinner. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know all the terminology, but they have like one of these religious dinners there at the house, and it's like this whole thing. There's like a, a whole comedy of errors going does on. Does he have like a scene where he does talk to Emily then about whatever their relationship ending? Yeah, I think she knows about Sarah, and when it's revealed that Sarah is pregnant, that is a brutal moment for Oof. Emily because yeah. I think Emily had been trying to get pregnant for years and it Yikes. wasn't happening. It was a whole thing. And it doesn't really end on a happy note. He eventually has to like slink out of there. But it is a long, wow, drawn-out part of the book that if they remade this, which they'll never do, um, maybe one day, but not anytime soon. If they did remake this, I would like to see it as like a mini-series on Netflix or something where they could really spend all this time on the different parts because the whole book is like very entertaining this is where they run over a python and they put the python in the trunk too yeah (laughs) there's like whole things with the trunk and the dog and then i think he tries to bury the dog at the farm i don't know there's like a whole thing all right but in the movie it's very short and emily is not there yeah i actually love the way it plays in the movie i love that they show up emily's parents show up and james is like just smoking weed like in their living room. And drinking booze. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of funny charm in this movie. You have Sarah reacting to James spending time with right. Grady being like, isn't he lucky? Yeah, she's got such a spark to her, Sarah. When James is making up his lies about his family and he says that his mother was a dancer and Grady says, what kind of dancer? And James's response is he like looks away and says, whatever kind they wanted her to be. <laughs> that's the part you think Grady isn't buying it because he kind of reacts like oh my god right we see a picture of Grady's wife Emily and she is shockingly young and shockingly beautiful I know she's like got that long red hair I think she's like an actress that wasn't just Sarah's jealousy that was accurate yeah and there is a throwaway line towards the beginning when Crabtree's like well you'll get a new wife and she'll be young and she'll be beautiful they all are so He's clearly cashed in on like people thinking he was a big deal. Because, yeah, I mean, Michael Douglas is like a, a handsome guy, but I did say he put on some weight for this, and he's sort of like a loser. And he's not like well-kept. Like, he kind of seems like yeah. a mess. Right. So I think that his wives and his past, or, or at least the more recent ones, are probably people that thought he was like a genius or something. Oh, a big and deal. Yeah. Found out he was like kind of just a loser. Right. <laughs> James, though, has fully embraced the pot and the booze. As you mentioned, he's going hard at it even when Emily's parents get home. Emily's not there, and we never meet her. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, they don't react too harshly to walking in on James. But I guess it's like, as older people, you're just like, okay. I mean, like, <laughs> I don't know. There was well, yeah, they kind of me- cut that little moment yeah, of yeah. like their reaction when they just go to Emily's dad treating Grady's dog right. bite on his yes. ankle. Yeah, I think the implication is that they like Grady, her parents, but you know they know that it's just not a good relationship. Yeah, it's not and, a good. And he's really situation. not good for her. He's probably closer to being a peer of Emily's dad. Yeah, I think that is. Sort yeah. Of, so they're probably happy that it's over. Right. Like, okay, well, this is fine. I mean, done. and you know, there's a lot of sadness to her dad just being like, "I'll tell you where she is," but it's like, look. 
she feels like you haven't been there for and you haven't been there for for a long time. Yeah, and, and then Brady hits. doesn't even know the name. Yeah, of her person. friend. She's like, what? Yeah, just oblivious. <laughs> and then he's like, well, I hope it's a really good book or something. <laughs> Which means that she's probably good complaining oh, yeah. to her parents about this fucking book. <laughs> right. I know, that almost seems like a dig. I love the look of this blue Twilight Drive as they're heading back where they're going over the bridge with like the yeah. factories and all that shit. It looks really cool. James deduces that Grady and Sarah are in a relationship, which isn't that hard to do. Uh, it seems like everyone has made that deduction. Well, I think he probably told Crabtree. Yeah, yeah. I don't think Hannah knows. No. Hannah's just too, she's got like tunnel vision for him. But what is the deal with Hannah? Is she having like parties at this house when Grady's not there? No, no, no that's a Crabtree. Oh, that's a Crabtree thing. Party. I yeah. see. When they get back. It seems like Grady is having uh, an existential crisis where he's talking about how it doesn't matter if you're mm-hmm. good or not, James. Like, who cares what I think? Books don't matter. Uh, not like yeah. they used to. Right. And you, you sort of learn a little bit about James because he reveals his admiration for Grady as a writer and saying, I want to be a yeah. writer because of you, and I came to the school to be taught by you. This uh, Grady monologue is kind of like this podcast where we're just like, nothing's good anymore. <laughs> Movies aren't cool or fun. Everything sucks. Yeah. <laughs> So they stop at Howard Johnson's, which was filmed in Bel Vernon. And of course, as we talked about the first time we recorded Wonder Boys way back in 2016, this Howard Johnson's is long gone. Yeah. Hasn't been there forever. There are no, I don't even know if there's any Howard Johnson's left at all. Yeah, there the might world. be like a handful or maybe even like one or two or something. But, I, but there's none around here, that's yeah. for sure. It used to be a big deal. Especially going back decades. Yeah, like yeah. The they go to one in, in a Mad Men episode. Yeah. They used to be like hotels, too. Right. Like hotels with like restaurants and stuff. I probably went to one when I was younger. I don't have a memory of going to one, which is a really sad, regretful thing. All the good diner chains like King's. Yeah. <laughs> is King's regional? Will people even know what that is? I don't know. <laughs> I think it is regional. They're disappearing. James's lies are exposed, and then Grady tracks down James's parents. They pick him up at Howard Johnson's. James is super reluctant to go. They are cold and distant. They're wearing like tuxedos and yeah, they're almost like cartoonish villains in right. a way. <laughs> and the mom even says like, "Well, we figured we could put in an appearance." Yeah, <laughs> like they don't seem to care about James at all. Yeah, it's the I, I guess the the grandma from Gilmore Girls. Oh yeah, Kelly Bishop. James is throwing out more lies, saying that they're actually his grandparents, and then Grady's like, come on, that man looks exactly like you, and he's like, there's a reason for that, implying like incest. He's throwing like everything at the <laughs> yeah. wall, and at this point, Grady's like, no Enough. fucking way. Yeah. Carvel doesn't exist, you liar. Right. You just made me make a fool of myself to the Beltlanic person. <laughs> How am I going to recover? Yeah. <laughs> Grady returns to his house to a party spilling out of his front door thrown by Crabtree. I like how you thought it was Hannah. Meanwhile, Hannah's well, like, like up in her room I reading know, this but, book. I, I know, but there's like it seems like it's like college kids there. So I, I guess is Crabtree just like rounding people up from WordFest? I guess, yeah. Okay. I think the idea is that there are tons of WordFest events that Grady has missed by yeah, yeah. going on a day-long trip with James. Hannah's reading the Wonder Boys manuscript and... Aside from that, people are starting to link James with the missing jacket and the missing dog. Oh, yeah. It's decided that Crabtree and Grady will have to go rescue James because 
Grady is seemingly having second thoughts about turning him over to his parents. And also he's getting worried about the whole situation. He was like, you know what? James' parents do seem like they suck. Hannah provides the address because they're listed in the phone book, which is something for some reason that the older people didn't think to try. (laughs) Yeah. Crabtree, after Grady's glowing review, starts to sample James' manuscript from the Love Parade. So I don't know how much time is being spent, but it's already dark out when they're at Howard Johnson's. And then however long it takes James's parents to get there, he leaves. And then he just sits in his car and seemingly reads like an entire novel. Yeah, yeah. So hours have to be good. I mean, well, it gets dark early in February. <laughs> That's true. Crabtree's interested in publishing James's book. They find James's house. It's a giant mansion. There's tons of windows. But one thing that James mentioned happens to be true, which is that he's in the basement. Although it's not nearly the situation he was trying to imply. No. But this does seem like creepy living, I will say. Yeah, it is like a weird, semi-unfinished feeling yeah, basement. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like hard dusty to tell. and rock. <laughs> a lot of rock. But it's a shrine to Hollywood's golden age. There's posters and books and VHS tapes and all kinds of Hollywood related material it's a nice little cozy yeah place he's set up for himself down there in what actually turns out to be a pretty stupid move the three <laughs> of them leave Poe's corpse in James's bed as a decoy and then they take James back yeah so leaving the dog is a red flag that really incriminates it just throws it just puts everything on the line then it's all going to come crumbling down eventually is basically what you're saying yeah because james is like well my mom's been coming down every half hour to check on me i don't know why because it didn't even seem like they were interested in him at all right but she's coming down to see if he's there every half hour so she's going to come down she's going to find the dog they're going to freak out which they do they call the police it gets connected to the university like he's missing whatever yeah yeah. it's a whole thing And you wonder, it's like, well, if they would have just left the dog out of it, maybe a lot of this stuff wouldn't have played out. But I guess it just... Well, it's one of those subconscious things for Grady, too, because he's trying to find a way to tell Sarah about the dog, (laughs) and he just can't do it. Crabtree and James end up in bed together back at Grady's. Rather quickly, I would say. Crabtree kind of just lures him into a room and then kind of closes the door. Yeah, it had that feeling of inevitability. One of the more annoying things that people do on Letterboxd and... Reddit and Twitter is like when they refer to like actors as other characters they've played. So you see a lot of like Tony Stark, Tony Stark and Peter Parker, Peter Parker, LOL, you know, like Iron Man and Spider-Man fucking LOL. It's like, (laughs) people, (laughs) they're actors. They're in different movies. Oh, God. But that's a go to for a lot of people. Sure. (laughs) Hannah falls asleep reading Wonder Boys. Tired and confused, Grady calls the Gaskell's house and tells Walter that he's in love with Sarah. As they're getting off the phone after that awkward moment, there is a Kravnik's sporting goods van speeding away as it was staking out Grady's house. This is only important in the sense that it explains why Grady's able to figure out where something is later. I know. You just have to like pay attention to that little moment there. The following morning, it it does all come crashing down and starts closing in on James and Grady. James's parents have contacted the school, and Walter has also made the connection between James and the missing Marilyn Monroe jacket and Poe. I love when Sarah comes over to the house 
And she just is like, I've been trying to call, but <laughs> picks up the phone that was off the hook all night. <laughs> Something's wrong with the phone. Yeah, because he pulled it out onto the porch. Right. And then got off the phone with Walter and then just passed out or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Sarah arrives and Grady starts to confess everything, but then the police arrive too. Is he awake? There's a police officer on the porch and he's not going away. That same guy? Same one. No offense, Professor Tripp, but you look sort of crappy. He's right. I mean, you do look horrible. It's the Chancellor. We're fine. We're just fine. Fine, right. Fit as a fucking fiddle. James, come on. Uh, James, this book of yours? It's not bad. It's not bad at all. Thank you. I'm going to publish this. I think with the proper editorial guidance, this to be brilliant. Oh, that's great. That's great. Between Officer Pubchick and you, he can be the next Jean Genet. Been a long time since somebody wrote a really good book in jail. Sarah and the cops escort James to the chancellor's office to discuss the ramifications of his actions. But before they go, she does bring up the fact that he called the house the previous night. Yeah, so right. she knows about it. Walter told her and Grady says, well, what did you say? And she's like, I said, it, it didn't sound like you. Yeah. <laughs> I do love when he calls Walter and Walter's like, do you know what? I have any idea what time it is? And he's like, yeah, I, uh, I got eight 30 but I'm pretty sure that's not right. <laughs> He's like, it's three in the morning. Right. <laughs> Which I did think that scene is weird, though, too, because it ends with him being like, I want to see you in my office on Monday. And I mean, I know he's like the guy's boss, but I would be like, let's pretend this never happened. <laughs> like, <laughs> we'll just go on living our lives. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really want to see you in my office Monday morning. But as far as Marilyn's jacket, that's still in Grady's car, which is now missing. Recalling the car incident with the man they called Vernon Hardapple outside of the hi-hat, Grady is beginning to suspect that this car, which was given to him by a friend who owed him money, may have actually been stolen and not that guy's property to give in the first place. What a plot. What a plot detail. It's like... This is something that he mentions towards the beginning of the film when he's talking to Crabtree on the way back from the airport. Again, this is something that's easier to convey in a book. Yeah. <laughs> it's harder to just have all of these details just, spread out throughout it. Right. And just kind of mention that you had a friend who gave you this car because he owed you money. Yeah. I do think that the specifics of this movie are not that important. Yeah. <laughs> like, That's it doesn't fair. really matter. Right. It's just one thing to the next. Before Grady and Crabtree go on a mission to recover the jacket, Hannah has some real talk for Grady about this fucking book of his. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Grady, you know how in class, how you're always telling us that writers make choices? Yeah. And even though your book is really beautiful, I mean, amazingly beautiful, it's... It's at times, it's, uh... Very detailed. Uh... You know, the genealogies of everyone's horses and, and the dental records and so on, and... And I could be wrong, but it just, it sort of... Reads in places like, you didn't really make any choices. 
at all. A and I was just wondering if it might not be different if... if when you wrote, you weren't always... under the influence. <clears throat> well... Well... Thank you for the thought. But shocking as it may sound, I am not the first writer to sip a little wheat. Furthermore, it might surprise you to know that one book I wrote, as you say, under the influence, just happened to win a little something called the Pen Award, which, by the way, I accepted under the influence. I do love that he bristles at it, too, which I think is great. Right. Where he's just like, well, whatever. <laughs> She's basically. Oh, like, I know. Yeah, it's it's actually really cringe to watch him get so defensive. <laughs> is it though, or is it great? Well, yeah, it's great too. But basically, she says that as a professor, he has told his students to make choices. That writers make choices, and that's oh boy. just what yeah. the story is. And ultimately, she's saying that he made no choices. Right. That it just goes on and on and on. This is uh, what we like to call dropping truth bombs. Yeah, this is where she's like. You know, once you get into dental records and the genealogies of horses. And <laughs> but his reaction is sort of like, well, what do you know, you bitch? <laughs> because, oh, because I was she under the influence yeah, she when I wrote that, that book. It's because he smokes pot all the time. And he's like, well, you love the horse's daughter. And I smoke pot during that. I got and I an, award, an award. And I accepted that award under the influence. It's like, oh, no. It's like Grady. Get it together. I think her attraction to him was gone oh, yeah. already after reading Wonder It was the Boys, genealogy was of horses like... chapter. <laughs> Man, it was like a fucking tumbleweed had just yeah. gone by. The... <laughs> it was well, like a desert in there. Right. <laughs> She's all of a sudden looking for Q's phone number. <laughs> that Q guy, he seemed pretty cool. This is one of those moments that's hard to believe. And for those of you, I don't think there are many of you who actually listen to the Salute your shorts, give us a second. It reminds me of the end of that episode where <laughs> I was like, for some reason that doesn't really make sense, they bring this weight out and then they talk about how much the weight weighs right. and then yeah. they weigh the weight and you're like, none of that really makes sense. This moment kind of is like that. Inexplicably, Grady brings the manuscript, all of it, of Wonder Boys along yeah. when they try to retrieve the jacket. Well, there might be something too. What Crabtree says about the whole situation, because yeah, well, that is the only way they could justify yeah, yeah. it is that he's sort of freaking out now because Hannah read it and he knows that that's true and, and he needs to just get this thing out of his life. Yeah. At one point, I think he he types in twenty six twelve as like what yeah. page number he's on. If you have that many pages, there must be something in there that's usable and that you could I know work yeah. with. Well, that he's been working on for as, as much as seven years. Yeah. Assuming that the Kravnik's van had something to do with the car, they go to Kravnik's Sporting Goods, which is actually a bowling alley. And when I saw it this most recent time, I yelled Kingpin, and I looked it up, and yes, it is the same place that they film stuff from the movie oh, Kingpin. Oh, okay. Wow. Starring Woody Harrelson, Randy Quaid, and Bill Murray. Yep. A, cl a comedy classic from the 90s. And former recommendation, if I remember Yeah, correctly. Yeah, another famous Western PA filmed movie, Kingpin. The jacket is not in the bag, though. They do find the car, but not the jacket. Grady retrieves his weed and James's pistol, only to have one of his little episodes. He wakes up to Ula, 
the waitress from the hi-hat, wearing Marilyn's jacket, looking down at him through the window of the car. It's a surreal thing that almost feels like a dream at first because yeah. it's so like random. A chaotic scene ensues. Vernon Hardapple is there with a gun. Right. Grady accidentally fires James's gun through Which, the roof of the car. By the way, it does seem like a super dangerous move because it kind of feels like they're in a heated situation and Vernon has a gun on him and he accidentally yeah. squeezes off a shot. Well, in reality, that that gun that James had would only hold one bullet. It's yeah. like that kind of gun. So right. the fact that he shot the dog twice, you're already like, okay. And then Something's there's a up. third bullet in there. I know. <laughs> All right. Crabtree, waiting in Hannah's car, which they borrowed to make this little trip, starts honking. Everyone's freaking out. Crabtree tries to drive up with the passenger side door open to rescue Grady. But the car goes out of control, swerves wildly. There's no like lines about it, but I was taking it that it's like Crabtree can't really drive, and I think it's a stick shift. I'm just, I'm like making this whole thing like well, he, he lives drove in New York. there though. Okay, yeah, then never I think mind. he just freaked out. Yeah, it's horrible. It doesn't make any sense that the spin's so out of control. And he crashes into the side of the building with Grady's manuscript blowing out of the car, lost in the wind, being swallowed by the Monongahela River. His only copy, two thousand six hundred and eleven or twelve pages. I don't know how all of that's flying out. They're in boxes, and they're stacked on top of each other. It just doesn't seem believable that all of it would be lost. But okay, I get it. I get what the idea is. It's fine, right. (laughs) I do love the scene that comes next, because there's like a funny cut then of just Vernon and Ula driving them back to campus. I know, after this. That's actually a great cut, because at first you're like, well... You need the explanation. It's like, no, it's actually better if you don't have an explanation. They're just <laughs> yeah, driving them right. back. <laughs> and this whole conversation is hilarious. It's like it's really great. And you are just like, are they just abandoning that other car? <laughs> I know. It's like, well, we have to tell Hannah we smashed her car. Just add that as another thing that happened <laughs> yeah. this weekend. You'll be all right then. Look at, look at Carlisle when he lost his luggage. That was Macaulay. Oh. Well, what about Hemingway when Hadley lost all those stories? He was never able to reproduce them. Look, Trip, I don't want to depreciate the loss. But maybe, you know, in a sense, it's for the best. You're suggesting it's some kind of sign? In a sense. My experience, signs are usually a little more subtle. Let me get this straight. All that paper that blew away back there, that was the only copy? I'm afraid so, yes. And you, you saying that it's some kind of a sign? Man, what in the fuck the matter with you? Don't. All I'm saying is that sometimes, subconsciously, a person will put themselves in a situation, perhaps even create that situation, in order to have an arena in which to work out an unresolved issue. Or it's a covert way, if you will, of addressing a problem. I'll tell you the problem. You behind the wheel. There's your problem. Excuse me. Did you or did you not? Have a gun to his head. Road, he please. was trying to steal my car. Well, I'm asking you a question. Did you or did you not have a gun to his head? You get my nerve, man. It's enough. Right, his dad is done. I don't want to hear about it anymore, okay? What was it about? Your book. What was the story? I don't know. 
what he means. It's difficult to distill the essence of a book sometimes because it lives in the mind. But you got to know what it was about, right? If you didn't know what it was about, why were you writing it? I couldn't stop. Grady tells Ula the story of the jacket and allows her to keep it. Worried that Grady's choice comes at the expense of damaging James's future, Crabtree convinces Walter not to press charges by agreeing to publish his absurd book about <laughs> Joe DiMaggio yeah. and Marilyn Monroe. He's I, just hoping that the loss they take on publishing that book is outweighed by the success of Love Parade. <laughs> Let me quote directly from what Walter describes yeah. oh. in this book and the whole thing, because it is unbelievable. Oh, I know. <laughs> He refers to it as, quote, a critical exploration of the union of Joe DiMaggio and Marilyn Monroe and its function in American mythopoetics, which tentatively I have entitled The Last American Marriage. And he looks over at Sarah when he says that, I think. (laughs) He gets so giddy when he's getting ready to announce it, too, because he saved this for the finale. He's like, last but certainly not least, or... You know, however he phrases it before going on to... Well, that's what's so great about his character is that you see what all of this fucking blowhard nonsense is. It's that he has been working on this book. Yeah, yeah. And he's trying to get people to ask him about it, basically, is why he's talking about this shit nonstop. (laughs) Yeah. And his obsession with this stuff. So this whole final, I I don't even know what you would call it, like, event at the auditorium with all the people in attendance and he's making these announcements. There's sort of a wild moment where you see Hannah sitting in the crowd sitting next to none other than Rob McElhaney. That's right. From It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Very jarring, I think, the first time we noticed that. Yeah, and I think years ago when we first recorded this, maybe, I don't know, we just thought that he was like an extra. I don't know. Yeah. Is Is there more to it? Oh, there's much more to it. All right. So Rob McElhaney was cast as Hannah's love interest. Oh, shit. And then cut out of the film entirely, except for this one moment where he appears on screen. Bummer. So that explains possibly why Katie Holmes' part seems smaller than you would think, because all of the scenes with Rob McElhaney were cut. Oh, okay. Around this same time period, Rob was also cast in the Joel Schumacher film Tigerland, which turned out to be a big flop, but going into it, Everybody around that age was trying to get it. It was like this huge part. It was one of those parts that like everyone of a certain age is fighting for. Okay. They were sort of looking for an unknown. They cast Rob McElhaney. He gets it. Like right before they start filming it, they're like, hey, we found this other guy. And it's Colin Farrell. Oh, okay. And this is the movie that broke Colin Farrell really to American audiences because it came out in the same year as Wonder Boys, which was 2000. And so because of these repeated failures... It seems like Rob sort of realized it wasn't happening for him as an actor, and that's probably why we got It's Always Sunny wow. in Philadelphia. It yeah. was like, like, well, we have to do it ourselves here right. and come up with this. But yeah, it is hilarious seeing him for like that five seconds <laughs> right. in the movie. <laughs> and frankly, I love It's Always Sunny, and I think Rob is funny on that show. I don't think that we needed Hannah's love interest in this movie. I would this agree. movie's an hour and 45 minutes. I'm assuming that even if he was kept in the film, we'd still be under two hours. But it doesn't need yeah. anything else. Yeah, I would have thought that like every male on campus was Hannah's love interest, at least from their perspective. It does sort of 
lead you down a path of like, well, does she finally get serious with this dude once she realizes like, I'm not gonna go this Grady, for Grady thing anymore. ain't gonna happen. Or is that just ongoing at the same time? There is a character in the book who I think is the character that they would have made into this, I think, but it's not really clear. Okay. So who knows? It might have been an invention in the script, and then they're just like, well, fuck it, get rid of it. Yeah. Scrap it, it's not working. <laughs> this guy's not doing it for us. You know who we should have got? Colin yeah. Farrell. <laughs> Grady gives his pot to Traxler, seemingly. Big day for Traxler. Giving up on it. And in the narration, he does say that his fainting spell stopped for good after his book blew away and was swallowed by the Monongahela River. James is given his big moment to shine where he gets to stand up and bow. Oh, boy. Take a bow, James! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I found that part pretty cringe the like first time I watched Walter this. Walter is like... It's, uh, it's grown on me. Calling it the lovely parade. Oh, yeah. The love parade. Love parade. Everyone has to correct it under that the breath. That redheaded bitch from the beginning is oh, there. Oh, I know, making her comments. That's like the girl I probably would have been like in love yeah. with, but terrified <laughs> of. Yeah. <laughs> the ending of the movie does remind me a little bit of Stand By Me, where he just is all of a sudden at like a typewriter. That's right. Yeah. He's like, do you ever have the same kind of friends when you're 55? Jesus, does anyone? <laughs> James Lear was stabbed in the throat at a fast food restaurant. Breaking up a fight? Yeah. Actually, it would have been Crabtree. Hannah graduates and becomes a junior editor. James drops out, moves to New York City to rework his novel for publication, and Crabtree goes right on being Crabtree. That's right. According to Grady. Grady is now with Sarah, and they have their baby, and it's like a happy ending. He makes a choice, and this is sort of the whole point of the movie, is that he has matured enough to make choices. He gives his weed away. It's like, I'm not going to do this anymore. That's right, yeah. I have to make a commitment to Sarah. I love her, and I want to be with her. In my 40s and need to take a stand on something. I do think that the character of Sarah is a little underwritten, where she's just pathetically waiting for Grady to make a decision. Yeah. But, I I mean, look, people get caught up in things. Yeah, I know. know. I know. And then the big moment of the end of the movie is him saving his work on this new novel he's writing about that weekend. On a computer. He's like hitting save. Right. It's almost like hitting refresh on Facebook. Oh, yeah. That's to it. see if it's Rooney like Morrow will be your network. friend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's it. That's how it ends. And presumably there might be dueling novels about that weekend because James was writing something that seemingly was about that at one right. point when they came to his house. That would be funny if both books came out about that one weekend and they were both successful and it just became like this mythic thing where people who are (laughs) fans of the books would be like man that weekend that legendary weekend (laughs) it was all happening yeah so that's it that's your revisited do you think we did a better job this time i think so yeah i think that's fair to say a little bit more in depth i think the bar was pretty low yeah well that's the case for yeah i would say almost the first 90 true (laughs) happy to dive back in though this is a great movie it's a movie that i continue like i said my admiration continues to grow for it love it love the grady trip character love these wild misadventure weekends of old people yeah there is definitely that hopeful feeling of like well you can still have fun that's right yeah even though it's a lie yeah (laughs) yeah if you haven't seen the film yet i mean we did just ruin it for you but it was streaming on hulu recently i doubt that it still is 
but it does pop up on streaming services. It's probably on Paramount Plus right now. Is it? I think it is. Maybe we not. always are talking about yeah. Paramount Plus. I'm sure <laughs> no one has that. Well, it is a Paramount movie, and it was, they just put it out on Blu-ray. Yes, I was going to say it finally has been released on Blu-ray. It was only on DVD the first time around that we did this. The Blu-ray is pretty new. It looks good, too, I have to say. Yeah, it looked all right. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? What? <clears throat> what? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. All right, folks. We have a little bit of time left for recommendations. Do you, you have one? I do have one. Oh, no. Um, again, with the uh, HBO Max Turner Classic Movie section, which is just a, a goldmine of older movies. I watched this for the first time. 1967, Wait Until Dark, directed by Terrence Young. I mean, the premise is absurd because... Audrey Hepburn plays this like blind woman, but it's this weird kind of limited storytelling. It all takes place mostly like within her apartment. Yeah. And Alan Arkin is just this like creepy villain. So I, it was just like a really cool movie. I thought for, for the mid to late sixties kind of before the new Hollywood era. So, you know, there's yeah. not like a ton of violence in it, but it's kind of like this cool little horror movie with like a really cool, original theme that was kind of reminding me of Halloween a little bit actually but I, I don't know I just found it to be like a pretty cool old movie still taking this dive down into the older ages of movies for the stuff that I haven't seen but this was uh, one that I would recommend yes I am familiar with it I have seen it and I own it on blu-ray very good yeah it's always fun to watch an Audrey Hepburn movie yeah just shockingly skinny I, I was like almost what <laughs> I was like blowing me away I'm like I cannot believe how skinny she is yeah, I I do remember parts of it. I don't really remember. I might have to rewatch it. I, I don't remember. Just it. a crazy, most elaborate like home invasion scheme <laughs> ever, but a cool movie. I'm going to recommend a couple of documentaries that Whoa. you can check out on Shudder, which I'm sure most people don't have, but I would recommend Shudder. It's only $4.99 a month. It has a lot of great horror shit on there. Yeah. And they also get stuff streaming that is unavailable anywhere else sometimes. I'm like, going to get it. They had The Devil's which is the Ken Russell film starring uh, Oliver Reed and Vanessa Redgrave. It's one of the more controversial Warner Brothers movies ever. It was so crazy. came out in like the early 70s. That was unavailable. They had that. They got Near Dark, oh, yeah. the Catherine Bigelow vampire movie, right. which you can't really find anywhere else, and the Blu-ray is long out of print. So they get shit like that. They have a lot of horror stuff, and they have a lot of original stuff. But the two things I'm recommending is In Search of Darkness 1 and 2. These are four-and-a-half-hour documentaries, four-and-a-half hours wow. each. Holy hell. And they are almost like TV shows. They're not like filming in a bunch of places. It's talking heads yeah, yeah. with clips of 80s horror movies. So they go through the 80s during In Search of Darkness Part 1. They start in 1980. They go through 1989, in case you weren't sure what the 80s were. Okay. <laughs> and they pick out a bunch of movies to talk about, and they, they take little side ventures. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll do a section about The Final Girl, or they'll do a section about Sex and Nudity. I hope The Hunger pops up. It's in one of them. I can't remember which one. Okay. Then they do the same thing all over again in Search of Darkness Part 2 where they talk about movies that they didn't cover in part one, all 80s. It is weird. There's some stuff where you're like, man, I wish they would focus a little bit more on some of these other things rather than talking about 
the Nightmare on Elm Street sequels or the Friday the 13th sequels. You know what I mean? Like right. They cover every sequel between the two movies and stuff like that. But they get a lot of cool talking heads. Some of them are a little annoying, especially in part one. I'm not going to call out the guy's name specifically because I don't remember it, but some horror blog guy who seems to be reading like scripted things about it. He's super annoying, but he's barely in part two. But it's not enough to ruin it. It's still pretty fun if you have a fondness for 80s horror or for the days when VH1 or E would do shows like this all the time. Yeah. You know, I love the 80s or whatever. It's very much like that, where it's just talking head after talking head. A lot of them have specific ties to the movies, either stars of the movies, directors. Okay. You know, they talk to, like, Joe Dante and Mick Garris and... Robert Englund, I think, is in the second one, or like Barbara Crampton. Whoa, all the stars. Both uh, Linnea Quigley. Oh, they don't talk about sorority babes for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) Although they do have a whole section where they talk about Linnea Quigley specifically, and then they have in part two they'll have like Nancy Allen on Nancy Allen, and then they talk about Nancy Allen for a while, and then they'll do like Robert Englund on Robert Englund, and they'll talk about Robert Englund for a while. For some reason, he's not in. Part one, though, which is when they actually talk about, I think, the movie he directed, which is 976 Evil, and the first Nightmare on Elm Street. So he's really just sort of recapping stuff that they already talked about. But, you know, they they hit all the big ones. You know, they talk about The Fly. They talk about The Thing. They talk about obscure stuff. I'm sure stuff that people aren't super familiar with. So for me, it's like a good checklist of what sounds interesting. What don't you own on Blu-ray? Well... No, not necessarily. Just looking them up on Roku to see sure. if I can watch the movies somewhere or something. Which I did watch one of them, and I was—I didn't think it was that good. Okay. <laughs> frankly. But there you have it. In Search of Darkness 1 and 2, comprehensive 80s horror, and uh, Wait Until Dark. Where was that streaming? HBO Max? That's right. Yeah. I know that normal people probably don't have every single streaming option available, but I do. Yeah. <laughs> Live it up, It's people. my life. Right. All right, so we thank you for listening. Follow the show on Twitter, at Greatest Pod. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts or Podbean or something like that. If you would like a sticker, let us know. Slide into the DMs. Yeah, hit up the DMs so we can get that address. Folks, we have several listener requests queued up and ready to go. Oh. We will be doing, I think, two in August, two in September. So just hold tight. They're coming. We promise. Yeah, hopefully some of you that submitted them a while ago have been able to hang on. Well, it's not that hard to just keep looking at what a That's podcast true. posts. It's not, it's like not it's that, that much. much We're not asking that much. Come on. <laughs> it's free. There's nothing about this podcast that costs money. Which brings us to check out the Patreon. <laughs> I wish. Yeah. I wish we were at that stage. Right. You can find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983. And Matt Crosby on there as well. Let us know what you're watching, what you think of it, what you think of what we're watching. It's an ongoing discussion. We're always happy to hear from listeners. It's an endless journey on there, really. Or in life, really. That's true. We're all Grady trips. Yeah. (laughs) Not making choices. It's fucking wild that this movie, Wonder Boys, is 21 years old. I know. Not to, like, bring us down, but, I mean, Michael Douglas is, like, so old now. Oh, yeah. Well, I I, I know, and I was thinking about the Curtis Hansen thing. I was like, man, I can't believe Curtis Hansen is no longer alive. And I'm like, oh, this movie was 21 years ago. 
Yeah. And he did a few movies after this. That's right. I think he did In Her Shoes, Chasing Mavericks, and 8 Mile. Oh. Maybe something else, too. All right. So thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Pretty please with sugar on top. Baby, give me that love you got. Keep it coming, girl, good and hot. I don't want you to ever stop. Baby, I've been watching you for a long, long time. I'd be so happy if I could make you mine. Oh, I know you're a DJ, but I've heard your show. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, I, I like all the bands. I like, I've got a broad taste, you know, from, uh, from the Britpop bands like oh. uh, UB40, Def Leppard, um, <laughs> right back to classic rock like uh, Wings. Who's uh, Wings? They're only the band the Beatles could have been. Well, I love the Beatles. Yeah, so do I. What's your favourite Beatles album, then? Tough one. I think I'd have to say the best of the Beatles. <laughs>